morning, everybody. Um, I would, thank you, um, I would tell you where to turn in your Bibles this morning, but we're kind of going to be everywhere, so I figure it would be futile if I did that. Um, if you've been here the last couple weeks, we've been in this series where we've been talking about uh, the lesser known characters in the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and one of the things that I have absolutely loved about this series is the fact that it causes us to look at a story that I would say most of, us, most of us in this room have probably heard a hundred times. It causes us to look at that story through a bit of a different lens, because what can tend to happen is that if we've heard something over and over and over and over again, we kind of have a tendency to clock out, to just say, oh, I've already, I already know that, I've already heard that, and, and we really don't allow ourselves to, to be opened up to hear what it is that God might have to say. Um, so I have really loved this series, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to continue it. Now, some of the people that we've talked about over the course of the last couple of weeks are the religious leaders. We talked about how they were bent on crucifying Jesus. They were bent on killing Jesus. We talked about uh, Pilate, who was a Roman governor. We talked about Herod, who was a ruler of a region called Judea. We talked about Barabbas last week, who was a notorious criminal who actually was given in exchange for Jesus. Um, and so this week, where we're going to pick up at is the story of the criminals on the cross. Um, many of you might know them as the, the, the thieves on the cross, or really, uh, we only talk about one of them. Uh, and it's the thief on the cross who, who ended up putting his faith in Jesus, who ended up confessing that Jesus was the king that he said he was before he died. Um, however, it's really interesting. Uh, the first thing that we hear about when we're introduced to these two criminals is actually we're told that they reviled Jesus along with the religious leaders. Uh, in Matthew 27, we're told about how the religious leaders, they, they said, Jesus, if you're really the Christ, come down off the cross. He saved others, let him save himself. And it says that these criminals, it says, and the robbers, because they were robbers, who, crucified, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. So this is the first exposure that we have to these guys. They're reviling Jesus. Now that word revile, what that means is it means, it means hatred, it means to insult, it means to curse, it means to reproach, but it also has this aspect to it that means that you believe that the person who are you, you are reviling, you believe that they are culpably guilty. Now what culpably guilty means is that you believe that they deserve the punishment that they're going through. So that's what, that's where these criminals are when we're introduced to them. They believe that the punishment that Jesus is experiencing, that he actually deserves, that he actually is worthy of what is happening to him right now. So that's the first thing that we hear. Last thing that you hear about this, about, well, one of the criminals is this conversation that they're having with Jesus on the cross where this one criminal actually ends up coming to Jesus' defense and he says, he rebukes the other criminal and he says, do you, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so, what we have going on here, but anyway, there's this, there's this gap that, that we need to fill. How in the world do you go from reviling Jesus to being received by Jesus? How do you go from 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 believing that he is actually worthy of the punishment that he's experiencing 
to coming to his defense? How does, how does that happen? So what we're going to be talking about today is this gap. What happened in between that caused this change of heart, that caused this change of mind? Um, so go back a little bit. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've been reading about these people who have had these encounters with Jesus, and yet every single one that we've read about thus far, the encounter that they have with Jesus really didn't produce any change in them. It really didn't produce any sort of, uh, any sort of, they weren't convinced about who Jesus was, yet this week we see someone who is convinced. Now, now, these men, these criminals who hung to the left and right of Jesus, they most definitely had an opinion about who he was. They had heard that he was the son of God. They had heard that he was just a great teacher. They had heard that he was a phony. They had heard that he actually, the things that he did, he did them by the power of Satan. So they had heard an array of different things about who this man named Jesus was. And where they landed at this current moment is that they they believed that he was a fake. They believed that he was a phony, and they were reviling him. And we're going to see that, that they had never actually had a real encounter with Jesus until now. So what we're going to talk about is what did they hear? What did they see? And what maybe even did they think that caused this criminal to have a change of heart and a change of mind. Um, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us details about every single thing that every person and every story thought. It doesn't even tell us uh, everything that they might have said. And so we're going to have to do some stuff today. We're going to have to make some assumptions about, about what these people might have been thinking, about some of the things that might have happened. It's kind of like what we did last week when we talked about Barabbas. It actually doesn't even tell us a single word about what Barabbas said, but we can assume some things based on the context of the situation that we knew Barabbas found himself in. And so there are actually seven things that we do know for a fact that this criminal would have heard during his time standing next to Jesus. And they're the seven last words that Jesus said while he was on the cross. If you can go ahead and flip those up there. Um, so, maybe. Uh, anyway, I have them right here. So Jesus says on the cross, he says, Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, I thirst. He says, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he says, it is finished. And he says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So these are the seven things that we know that this man heard come from the mouth of Jesus. But we're also going to talk about some of the things that maybe were going through his mind, that maybe inwardly he was processing. There's only four of them up there. Uh, that maybe inwardly he was processing that the Bible doesn't tell us about. Now, the first thing that he would have heard was Jesus say, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Now, this might not seem like it has a whole lot of significance at first, but, but it actually does because, remember, the, the perspective that this man is viewing Jesus from is one, is one that believes that he's worthy of the punishment that he's receiving, one that believes that he is truly a criminal who deserves death. Yet, he sees this man talk to his mother. He sees this man, he, he sees this man show this in, immense care for his mother, who is at the foot of his cross watching him suffer, watching him die, he says to his friend, he says, what he's saying is, take care of my mom, because I'm going to be gone, and I need somebody to take care of my mom. What kind of criminal, what kind of man who deserves punishment shows care for his mother? The second thing that he would have heard Jesus say is, Father, 
forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, at this point, I think he's kind of stopped in his tracks, this criminal who's hanging next to Jesus. I think he's really beginning to kind of process whether or not he's drawn the right conclusion about this man named Jesus. Because what he'd probably be thinking is, what, what, what in the world? Why is this guy forgiving the very people that have crucified him? Why is this guy forgiving? Who, who does that? Surely a man who is deserving of punishment, a man who is worthy of the punishment that he is going through, wouldn't forgive the very people that are doing it to him. Surely that wouldn't be the case. And what this criminal also didn't understand is that when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's actually not just talking about the people that drove the nails through his hands. He's talking about the criminal himself. But the criminal doesn't quite grasp that at this point in time. The next thing that he would have heard Jesus say is, I thirst. Now, Jesus, at that moment that he said that, he was hours, maybe even less than an hour, maybe even minutes from death. And, and, and if you ask people who have been around a dying person, they'll say that oftentimes on their deathbed, one of the last things that they'll say is that they're thirsty. And so he hears this man who's dying, this man who's suffering next to him, as he is, say, I thirst. And then he sees a Roman soldier lift up a sponge filled with sour wine as a way to mock Jesus, as a way to not really not really give him what he's looking for as, as a way to mock him. So he sees that, and he hears Jesus say that. Then he hears Jesus say, Ali, Ali, lema sabachthani, which, like I said, means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at this point, this criminal is probably thinking, well, yeah, no, duh. If God hadn't forsaken you, you probably wouldn't be sitting up here on this cross right now. You probably would be free. You probably wouldn't be, you probably wouldn't have been beaten. You probably wouldn't have been scourged if God hadn't forsaken you. But what this criminal doesn't understand at this moment in time is that Jesus is actually not talking about the kind of forsaking that he thinks he's talking about. The kind of forsaking that Jesus is talking about is a much deeper one than a mere physical forsaking. He's not talking about, that, he's not talking about the fact that he's been forsaken just because of the fact that he's been left up on the cross. He's talking about being forsaken in his spirit. He had, Jesus had this oneness with God. Jesus had this communion with God this perfect oneness with God. And now, in this moment when he says this, that has been effectively removed. Any communion with God, any connection, any comfort that Jesus might be experiencing from God in this moment is gone. God is not with Jesus. God is experiencing, or Jesus is experiencing, instead of God's love and God's communion, Jesus is now experiencing God's wrath, the full wrath for the sin of these people that have crucified him, for the sin of these criminals, and what we'll talk about later is for really for our sin. That's what's happening right now. But he doesn't understand that. Now, there's, so we've talked about some of the things that this criminal might have heard. What I want to talk about now is some of the things that he might have been inwardly thinking and inwardly processing. Now, once again, I don't know these things for a fact, but I can only assume if I was in his shoes what I might be thinking. Now, I bet you that this man probably began to think about the life that he has lived. This man probably began to think about the decisions that he's made that have led him to the point that he's at. He might have even been thinking about the decision that he made that got him to where he's at now. I bet you anything he's thinking about the regrets that he has. I bet you anything he's thinking about the fact that he wishes he could go back. He wishes he could change things. He wishes he could live differently. And above that, I can almost guarantee you that I know he is thinking about what comes next. I am hours, maybe minutes from death, 
well, what comes next for me? What's, what's happening when this life here is over? I can guarantee you these are some of the things that he might be pondering. Now, given the fact that he is thinking about his life, given the fact that he is up on this cross, he, he obviously knows that he has done something wrong. He probably is reflecting upon the fact that the life that he has lived has not been a very good one. The life that he has lived has not necessarily been one that's honorable, has not been one that's been righteous, it's not been one that's been deserving of anything but, was he, but what he's experiencing right now. And so the thought then of what comes next is probably a pretty scary one for him. The thought of what comes next is probably one that, that he actually doesn't want to think about, yet the Bible tells us that eternity has been placed in the hearts of men, and so we know that regardless of how hard we try, we think about what comes after this life, especially when we are close to that moment of death. We just do. We can't avoid it. He is in a situation where he probably has given up on any hope of being rescued here in this world, but probably has given up hope on being rescued in the life to come, in the next life, probably has given up any hope of being redeemed. And so that's what brings us to this conversation that these people have. This is, these are the thoughts that this man is probably having. These are the things that he has heard Jesus say so far. And so remember, at the beginning, he's reviling Jesus, and he's now heard some of these things that Jesus has said. He's processed them. He's thought about his own life, inwardly reflected. And now he comes to this moment where the other criminal ends up, uh, the Bible actually says that he rails at Jesus. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. This is in, if you want, you can turn to Luke 23. This is where this is at, by the way. Um, He says, save yourself and save us. And then this criminal, the one that I've just been talking about, he actually rebukes that guy. And he says, he says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so in this moment where this man has given up on any hope, has given up on being loved, has given up on being forgiven, has given up on life beyond the grave, what he's met with is probably the most surprising thing that he could have possibly imagined. I think this really is the last thing that this man was expecting that Jesus would say to him. He wasn't asking for Jesus to save him. He wasn't asking to be forgiven. He actually just said what he, in essence, says is, I'm guilty, you're not. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't say that he wants to be saved. I'm sure he does, but he doesn't beg Jesus to save him. He just says, remember me. And yet, even still, Jesus, in his grace and in his love, even for this man, even for the man that hours before was reviling him, that was telling him, I believe that you are deserving of the punishment that you're going through, even this man. Jesus says, I receive you. You'll be with me. This man goes from reviling to now received by Jesus. This is a kind of grace that we can't possibly understand, that we can't possibly put logic to because it doesn't make any sense. Because that criminal was supposed to be the one 
who was in Jesus' place. Yes, that criminal did die on the cross like Jesus died on the cross, but that criminal was not forsaken in the same way that Jesus was forsaken. He did not feel the absence of God like Jesus felt the absence of God. Jesus was forsaken so that that criminal might not have to be forsaken, so that that criminal would have a hope once this life was over, and that was coming very, very quickly for him. He found himself without hope, and he was met with the greatest hope imaginable. The very next thing that, Jesus, or that this man would have heard Jesus say is, it is finished. Um, he would have heard him say, in the Greek, what is called tetelestai. And this word tetelestai, it's interesting. It's, it's actually, it's uh, kind of an accounting term of sense. What it means is, it means paid in full. It means that a debt has effectively been canceled. And they, from one of the things that I read, it actually said that on documents back in this time, they would actually write the word tetelestai to indicate that a monetary debt had been completed, that there was no more debt that needed to be paid, nothing else owed. And so this is what this man hears. And another interesting thing about this word tetelestai is the tense that is used. Now, if you know anything about Greek, you know that tense is very important. And I'm not saying I'm a Greek scholar by any means, but tense is something that's very important. Now, in the English language, we have our past tense, our present tense, and our future tense. I walked to the store, past tense. I am walking to the store, present tense. I will walk to the store, future tense. But in the Greek, there's actually seven tenses. And the tense that Jesus uses here is one that's called the perfect tense, and it's actually a combination of two different tenses. The combination, these tenses are the aorist tense, in the present tense. Now, stay with me here. The aorist tense is a tense that indicates a specific moment in time. And so you can think of that as Jesus saying, it is finished here and now. Right now, it is finished. But then there's also this aspect where the present tense comes in. And the present tense is linear. And so what that means is, that means that what Jesus is saying here is, it's, an, it's a completed action that has ongoing implications, that has ongoing results. So it's completed now, but what Jesus, the way that we can think about this is, it's more like Jesus is saying, it is finished now, and it will continue to be finished. It is finished now, and it will be finished forever. It will be finished tomorrow. It will be finished the next day. And there are no contingencies upon this tetelestai. There are no contingencies upon who it's finished for. The only, the only contingency, the only thing that that hangs on is whether or not you receive this offer that Jesus is now giving the entire world when he says to tell us die. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do anything for it. All we have to do is receive it. This criminal, what did he do? He did nothing. He was nailed to a cross. All he did was receive the gift that Jesus offered. All he did was receive the truth of Tetelestai, that it is finished, that it, this thing, this, this struggle with sin, this battle, this bondage that we, that, that we face, this thing that we are enslaved to, Jesus is putting it to death. Jesus is saying, it is over, no more. It's not based on your merit. It's not whether you're good enough. It's not whether you're bad enough. It is finished. I paid the debt. It's on me. Tetelestai is what a guilty criminal longs to hear most. And really, I'm not talking about the criminal in this story. I'm talking about the guilty criminals that we are. I'm talking about the guilty criminal that I am in light of a holy God. I'm talking about the guilty criminal that you are in light of a holy God. See, God is this perfect God. And we, I think everybody could agree, we are not perfect people. 
We do not live up to this standard that God has set. We do not, we do not even come close to being acceptable before his eyes because of this thing called sin. And yet Jesus, when he says, to tell us die, he says, it doesn't matter. If you receive me, if you believe that I died in your place, it can be finished for you. It is finished for you today, and it will continue to be finished for you. Now, one of the things that you might be asking is, Josh, you haven't mentioned anything about the other criminal. What about him? What about the one that we aren't told repented? What about the one that railed at Jesus and mocked him and tested him and said, save me and save yourself? What about him? Well, if we had to be honest, I would say that a lot of us could probably relate more to that criminal than we could to the one that repented. We probably could relate more to the criminal that says, Jesus, I just want you to save me. This unrepentant criminal, it's pretty obvious he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He just wants Jesus to save him. He just wants to escape from the consequences that he's having to endure right now. And how often is that us? How often are we that criminal instead of the one that repents? I know for me it can so often be the case. And yet still, this word, this tetelestai, is offered even to that criminal, even to him, this offer of grace, this offer of life, this offer of your debt being canceled is given to even him. See, we revile Jesus and he receives us. We forsake him and he takes on being forsaken for us. He says, I thirst so that we never have to thirst. Jesus takes the place that we actually deserved. And if you've been here over the course of the last couple weeks, that is a theme that has been pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded into our heads that really what's happening to Jesus is what should have happened to us. The punishment that he is enduring is the punishment that we should have had to endure. But it's not the case because he has such a deep, deep love for us that he not for one second desired to escape this, this cup that God had for him to drink. He did say, Father, let this cup pass from me if you can, if it is your will, but it was not God's will because God knew the only way to bring us back, the only way that our debt, that our, our debt for sin could ever be repaid, could ever be fulfilled, is if Jesus did what he did. And see, the, the crazy thing about, about uh, you know, I talked about how these people have had encounters with Jesus, and some of them were changed and some of them were not changed. When we have an encounter with something, it changes the way that we look at it. I was talking to my wife about this, and I said, you know, I had a lot of opinions on, on parenting and on marriage before I actually became a parent. Before I, before I actually got married. And I can remember I would see, you know, whether it be kids at a store or even, you know, kids who I'd be hanging around with. And I'd be like, man, why do their parents let them do that? Yeah, my kid wouldn't scream like that. My kid wouldn't do that. And granted, my kid's only th three months old, so she, she doesn't throw the kind of tantrums that I know she will eventually. But uh, then when it came to marriage, it would be, well, if they're running into that problem, well, why don't they just do this? Well, the thing is, we can have a lot of opinions, we can have a lot of perspectives, but then once we actually encounter something, once we actually walk through it, that changes. These men, like I said before, they had perspectives on who they thought Jesus was. They had thought that he was a fake. Who knows what they thought? They might have thought other things too. They had a perspective, but they had never actually come into 
come into an encounter. They had never actually had an encounter. They had never actually experienced who this Jesus really was. And now this man hears the kind of things that this Jesus is saying. He hears that this Jesus is a man that forgives those that revile him, that forgives those that crucify him. You see that this Jesus is a man that is willing to be forsaken so that they might not have to be. And when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he wasn't just talking about the people that were crucifying him. He wasn't even just talking about that criminal, but he was talking about you and he was talking about me. Because the only reason that Jesus actually had to go on that cross was because of you and me. If it wasn't for us, if it wasn't for the fact that we could not, we could not pay this debt, we could not live up to the standard on our own, he would have never had to be there. It's us whose place that Jesus took. And this other thing about perspective and about encounters is that, is that you know, we as people, we have to be convinced that Jesus is who he is. We, we just, as, just as this criminal was, we have our ideas about Jesus, and then we have to be convinced that he is who he says he is. We have to be convinced to love him. We have to be convinced to serve him. But the thing about Jesus is that he never actually had to be convinced to love us. He never had to have his mind changed in regards to how he felt about us, in regards to what he would be willing to do for us. Jesus never once decided to, to do something different. Jesus never once said, nope, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Even when he had every right, even while he was hanging up on that cross, while people were spitting on him, while people were, what the Bible says is people were deriding him, while people were railing against him, while people were reviling him, he had every right to get down to say, no way, I'm not doing this. Are you kidding me? These people, I'm not doing this. Never once. He remained silent. He stayed up there. That's the kind of God that we have. And so this morning, I just ask you, have you, I, I know that we all come from a variety of different backgrounds. Some of you maybe have been going to church since you were two years old. Some of you, maybe this is your first time in a church in your entire life. Nonetheless, I want to ask you, have you had a real encounter with the real Jesus that has produced a real transformation in your life? Now, the reason I say that is because I was somebody who grew up going to church my entire life. I always joke that if I was born on any other day than a Sunday, I guarantee you the next Sunday I was probably in a nursery somewhere in church. And so I knew all the stories. I was the one who had, all the, had heard all the things about Jesus, had all these perspectives on Jesus, yet until I was 19 years old, I never actually had a real encounter with this man named Jesus. Now, how can you say, how can, how can you go to church for that many years? How can you hear all the things that you had to hear about who Jesus was and never actually know him? Well, it's probably because of the fact that I, until I was 19 years old, didn't actually realize how guilty that I was, didn't actually realize how much of need I had for someone to take my place. And until then, I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I was the other criminal who said, you know, Jesus, I don't really want anything to do with you, but I want you to save me from consequence. I want you to save me from bad things, but I don't really want anything to do with you. But it is his grace that softens our heart. We sang a song before this that talked about how it talked about us asking for our hearts to be softened. And that is what God does. God softens the heart of even the most disgusting, even the most hard-hearted criminals. This criminal, both criminals in this story are really just a reflection of us, just a reflection of who we are.
and we are shown that there is grace for us that is beyond imagination. There is grace for us that is beyond what we deserve. The offer is there for everyone. Now, what a lot of people will argue is, well, the other criminal, we're not told that he repented, and so that what that automatically means is he didn't. What that automatically means is he died, he died in his sins, and so he went to hell. I don't necessarily know if that's true. The Bible doesn't really say, but what I can tell you is that I know that that tetelestai, that that offer of debt being forgiven, that that offer of it being paid in full, of it being finished, is given to absolutely every single one of us, regardless of if you are the criminal who says, Jesus, save me and save yourself, or if you're the criminal that ends up acknowledging that Jesus is a king, that you're guilty, and that he's not. That offer is there for every one of us. And if you are here today and you've never accepted that offer, maybe you didn't even know that that offer is being given to you. I want you to know today that it is, that there is an offer of new life, there's an offer of hope in even the most hopeless situations. And the only thing that we have to do is receive it. The only thing that we have to do is say, yes, I believe that. This criminal, you know, it, it, what he does, it goes against all theological, it goes against all, all uh, doctrine that you could probably be taught. He doesn't, he doesn't confess, Jesus, you are my personal Lord and Savior, and I accept you into my heart. He doesn't say that, does he? He's not baptized, is he? No. He, d- he doesn't even ask to be saved. He just says, Jesus, you're a king, I'm guilty, and I know that you're not, and you died in my place. That's all he says. And Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. What God offers us is an incredible offer that we don't deserve, and it's as simple as us receiving it. Have you received that? Even if you've been going to church your entire life, ask yourself, have you really received that gift of grace? You pray with me. Father, I just... I just don't even know why you give me the opportunity to do what you allow me to do. Lord, I don't know why you let me be the one to be up here speaking. I don't know why you decided to do what you did. Why you decided to go to the lengths that you did to bring me back. Lord, I am the criminal who wanted nothing to do with you. I am the criminal who reviled you. I am the criminal who, who thought you were just a big phony. Lord, I thank you that you have a love for us that is beyond imagination. Lord, I thank you that you have a love for us that is just beyond what we could ever fathom. Lord, thank you for the fact that you tell us that it is finished. You tell us it is finished today and you tell us that it is finished tomorrow and the next day and forever. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who has never changed his mind in regards to us, has never once decided to turn your back on us, Lord. We thank you that you decided to be forsaken so that we would never have to be, or that you decided to go thirsty so that we would never have to thirst. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in our lives, and we just pray that we would be humble servants, Lord, who come to you like the second criminal who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, let us not be proud. Let us not just want you 
to save us, but let us want you. Lord, let us realize that it's not paradise unless it's with you. Father, give grace to our guilty hearts. Give grace to our wandering hearts. Lord, we thank you again for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.